This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to Literary Treks, episode number 273. I am one of your hosts here on this podcast on Trek FM, which is the official Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Bruce Gibson, and with me, sitting across from me on my video screen, is Dan Gunther. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Not too bad, Bruce. Excited to be here on your monitor, uh, looking back at you. Um, it's, yeah. you know, don't, don't minimize me. Don't, don't click me away. Just keep me there. I, I don't like it. It's dark and cold when you do that. Are you feeling okay? You look a little flat. <laughs> I'm feeling a little two dimensional today. Yes. <laughs> How do I look about the same? About the same. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, there's definitely some, something going around for sure. You know, We're running into those two-dimensional life forms from the next generation. They've done something to us, apparently. Okay, life forms. <laughs> life forms. Okay, anyway, um, that's not what we're here to do, to sing and all that stuff. We're going to cover books and comics. And yes, we have a comic and we have a book. You get it all on this episode. And today's feature is on a novel that came out in 2006, and it is Star Trek Titan Orion's Hounds, written by Christopher L. Bennett. I'm just double-checking here. Is it 2006? Yes, I did that off the top of my head, memory, and it's true. So Very that, nice. yes, coming <laughs> up into the feature. But before we do that, we have one news item that we want to cover, and we have a comic that we want to review. So this news item is about the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and we're getting that classic movie novelization written by legendary Star Trek creator Gene Ronberry. This is the original novelization that came out at the time that this movie came out, 1979. And they're re-releasing it. We haven't seen the cover. I don't know if it's going to be the cover that the novel originally had when it came out or something different. But if you haven't read this novelization, it's definitely worth something to check out. So we also have the synopsis here. And Dan, since you so love doing these, <laughs> I'm going to offer you the chance to read it. But if you don't want to, I'll read it. But 
please feel free. Sure thing. Celebrate the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture with this classic movie novelization written by legendary Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. The original five-year mission of the Starship Enterprise to explore strange new worlds and to seek out new life and new civilizations has ended. Now, James T. Kirk, Spock, Dr. McCoy, and the rest of the crew of the Enterprise have separated to follow their own career paths and different lives. But now, an overwhelming alien threat, one that is ignoring all attempts at communication and annihilating all opposition in its path, is on a collision course with Earth, the very heart of the United Federation of Planets. And the only vessel that Starfleet can send in time to intercept this menace is a refitted Enterprise, with her old crew heeding the call to once again boldly go where no one has gone before. Yes. <laughs> They should make a movie out of that. That sounds yeah, great. Yeah, I think that would be epic. You know, get a real, uh, you know, insider Hollywood to direct, Hollywood director like Robert Wise or something to direct that. That would be really great. Wait, you mean the guy that did The Sound of Music? Oh, he would be perfect. I don't see anything wrong with this plan. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do love the motion picture, so... I actually do too. And I, I think I've mentioned on the show before that that film was kind of my what really got me interested in Star Trek to begin with. So uh, it's always got a special place in my heart. So it's fitting that, yeah, we're getting this re-release of the novelization on the 40th anniversary and it's coming out on my birthday, October 1st. So oh. happy birthday to me. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Cause I was just looking at the Simon and Schuster website and I don't see a release date. And I was going to mention there's no release date on here. So you saw it's on uh, October 1st. Yeah. And I did forget to put that in the, the details here, but that's, that is what Amazon says. It says October 1st uh, for the release and it'll be in trade paperback and 256 pages. So uh, that new format, big trade paperback. So Looking forward to that one. I'm, I'm actually, I, I will pick this one up because I think it's going to be a nice little memento of the 40th anniversary. I'm actually thinking of getting it too. Um, I do have the original one. I bought it at a used bookstore years ago. Mm -hmm. Me too. Um, but I kind of, especially if the cover is different, I yeah. think that would make me even want to get it more because it would be something that looks different. And of course, as you said, trade paperback, I see that the list price is $16, which has been typical of new releases of Star Trek novels. So, um, but maybe it'll be cheaper on certain websites eventually. Um, mm. But yeah, I think uh, it's worth checking out because the thing about the novelization is there's a lot of things in there that are not in the movie but also it's written by Gene Roddenberry. So it's his, you know, you're getting some insight as to how Gene Roddenberry sees the Star Trek universe. There's certain mm -hmm. concepts and things that he puts in there that I think are quite interesting. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about it sometime on a future episode. And maybe when it comes out, we could do a feature on it as well, because I think it would be worth taking a look at because... It's it's a little different from other novelizations, which I don't tend to enjoy, but I actually do really like this book. Yeah, so let's consider that, and let's put it out there to the listeners. You can make a comment in the Babel Conference on Facebook, and just let us know if you'd like us to cover it or not, and then we'll make a decision, <laughs> and we'll see. 
So let's move on to the next thing we have here, and that is a comic review of Star Trek Q Conflict number five, which means we've already done number one, two, three, and four on previous episodes. Now we got number five. It's not the last issue, though, but uh, this one continues that whole story where you have Q and he brings in the crew of the original USS Enterprise, Kirk and crew, and then Voyager and Deep Space Nine and the Next Generation crew and has them all fighting with these other godlike beings and the whole drama of all that that's going on, which originally we were kind of like, this feels a little cheesy and almost like fan fiction-y, if that's a word. But, you know, it's <laughs> like, I really have started to grow to like this more and more, especially the previous issue, number four. And this one, we start off where the other one teased us at the end, where we have two Q beings, in a sense. We have the one that was, I don't even know what to refer to him as, except for the guy from L.A. Law. <laughs> <laughs> Corbin, Corbin Burnson, yeah. Um, Corbin Burnson. Yeah, they I just met him call... at STLV last time. <laughs> yeah, and they just call each other Q. So, you know, right. it's... What do you think, Q? I don't know, Q. How about you, Q? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then the other one is... Was Amanda, Amanda Rogers. I, see, I shouldn't question myself. I was like, is it Amanda? I think it's Amanda. <laughs> yes, Amanda Rogers. So they show up, and they're like, Q, not me, Q, you, Q. Q, you need to stop all this, you know? You're, you're playing around with the wormhole aliens, and they're kind of more powerful than, you know, you shouldn't be messing with them. And Q's like, oh, Okay, whatever, because that was all in the previous issue with the aliens from the wormhole. But anyway, I don't want to get like too into this because now we're back into this whole thing where, okay, well, we're going to have the crews pitted up against each other again. And uh, this time we actually see Guinan. She's on the Enterprise D. So we get some words of wisdom from her. But the one thing that I thought was really cool and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, Janeway coming through uh, one of the Iconian gateways mm -hmm. on, to talk to Picard because Q cannot read or necessarily sense the communication that they have through the gateway. So she thought, hey, this is a way she can communicate with the other captains without Q eavesdropping or knowing that they're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a neat little... Uh gimmick there be and they kind of set it up early in the comic where they're like what if janeway figures out the gateway thing and sure enough she has sort of uh she's wary to step through it because as scotty said it's it's sort of working <laughs> but uh yeah they're able to communicate and kind of uh behind cues back which i thought was a neat way to do that because how do you put one over on an omnipotent being, right? So it's kind of cool that they figured a way around that. If you look at that page, when she first is contacting Picard, look at the one, the panel on the left, just above that, where he's got the face palm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that image that we see in memes all the time of Picard with his hand on his forehead, leaned down like, uh, you know, they actually <laughs> recreated that into this panel. <laughs> that was perfect. And, and it was a good Picard facepalm moment. So, you know, he's dealing with Q. He's going to pull out the facepalm for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then, of course, 
the Borg or in this episode. Oh, no, I'm sorry, this issue. <laughs> it feels like an episode, like a really <laughs> different type of episode. But now the crews are, of course, fighting the Borg, and we have the Borg Queen. Uh, all the things that are going on on a Borg ship with Cisco and his crew and Picard and his crew going on. And I th- the things I liked about this one is, first of all, we do get some Wesley Crusher appearing mm-hmm. with the Traveler. I thought that was kind of a neat little thing to put in there where he talks to Picard, basically saying, you know, we're here to help. Yeah, that was an interesting little, I, you know, pulling out stuff that I was not expecting at all. And I'm assuming he's going to play a bigger role in the next issue because this is kind of just setting that up, it feels like. And, uh, you know, we do see him in like the last panel of the issue just to kind of remind you. Oh yeah, Wesley's there. What's what's he gonna do? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because I thought, oh, what's gonna happen? And then we really don't get anything of him. So yeah, it's he's obviously gonna come back. You would assume. But then as it goes on, we have Seven and Nine, who is with Picard's crew on the Borg ship, and she is lured in to talk to the Queen. The Queen has brought her over, and oh, child, I finally have you, and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, Picard. Odo and Spock show up and Picard's like constable now and Odo you know in his stretchy form (laughs) you know grabs hold of the queen and then Spock comes with his pepper spray and (laughs) it's not pepper spray but it sure as heck looks like it when you look at that panel pepper sprays her and they got the queen because that was the goal of this contest was who can capture the boar queen and picard and his crew won and cisco who has yet to win a competition is on the borg ship and he sees picard and he's like oh i guess we lost again (laughs) i mean he doesn't say that but you know he's got to be thinking of it which was you know funny because i was expecting like oh cisco will win this one now you know and which tells me that this story ultimately isn't going to be about this contest. Like it's all going to come down to something else. And I feel like they're setting that up here. Uh, Partially because, you know, Q says, Oh, we'll make it the first one to win three competitions. And they only have one issue left after this. So obviously that's not going to fully play out or if it does, it's going to play out very quickly. Um, but I don't think it's just going to be, oh, this crew won and everything's all right now. There's something else they're building to, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I'd be curious to see what is going to happen. But uh, so the way this issue ends, all of a sudden we have a Enterprise shuttlecraft crashing into the Borg cube and it's Kirk with Worf on it. And uh, they're there to help take them off the ship. But it's a Galileo too, and it's destroyed. It got damaged. And so, oh, how are we going to get back to the ship? And Jamie's like, no worries. I have the gateway. Follow me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it ends. So, yeah, they're, it's, uh, they're, one thing I'm appreciating is they're using all the little bits from the previous issues to kind of weave it all together with the gateways and that stuff too. So it's interesting. I, they've they've crafted a more interesting story than I was expecting here. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying these. These are fun. They mm-hmm. they are. I mean, the stories. You know, I'm finding it interesting. And uh, yeah, the other one thing I was thinking about earlier. You know, Trelane. It's obvious in here that he's not viewed to be a Q. Mm-hmm. But there's been novels where they 
refer to Trelane as being a Q. And I've heard some fans to speculate and just in their headcanons that Trelane is a Q. But in this one, he's not. So in my headcanon in this is uh, Trelane is a Q, but Q doesn't want Trelane to know that because Trelane hasn't figured that out yet. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I've I've always personally thought of Trelane as something other than Q, so it's working for me. Maybe like a relative, a cousin, a cousin Q. Yeah, they're they're like they're like you know humans and Vulcans, Q and Trelane species. They're just you know on the same level, but just you know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they can interbreed and create a Spock, like a half human, half Vulcan. Maybe there can be a half. Q half Trillane species, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> eh, could be something like, or he could just be a, a neighbor. He's an R because R is next to Q. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, you know, maybe he's from a, a different species called the peas and they spent, you know, millennia ago, they, they terrorized all these species, including earth <laughs> way back in the distant past, which led to the phrase, mind your peas and Q's. Because, you know, that's so bad. (laughs) That's really bad. I I apologize for that. (laughs) Uh, I thought you were going to say something like, oh, and that's why, you know, Earth was peed on or something. (laughs) (laughs) That would be just about as bad. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Let's move on then. (laughs) Hey, you know, we get all this feedback on Facebook. I'll be curious to know what the feedback we get on what we just said about the P's and Q's. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, everyone, this is episode number 273. So when you look on Facebook in the Babel Conference, that's the one you want to make your P's and Q's comments on. But (laughs) we are going to read the comments on the episode we did, which was episode number 271. And it was called To Thine Own Self Be True. And this is the episode that we reviewed the novel The Captain's Oath, the one written by Christopher L. Bennett, which is funny because we're going to do a Christopher L. Bennett novel on this episode, too. So we did get some feedback here. Uh, yeah, you know, we're getting more and more feedback. I love it. Keep this coming. So mm-hmm. um, let's just pick some here. Chris Hill says, speaking of Spock 2 and the Waypoint comic, I found this gem. And here's this like Photoshop <laughs> photo of an older Spock, an old Spock in the TOS uniform as a giant on the grounds of Starfleet Academy. And he says, my name is Spock too. I have successfully aided in Dr. Stavros Caniculus in saving the Philosian people. I'd like to speak to someone about a reassignment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. You have to check it out. Go to the Babel Conference and look for that. That's excellent. Oh, Stefan Seitz has a couple uh, comments here, and I can't remember if I used the right name or the wrong name. I feel like I used the wrong name when we were talking about it, but he has the diagram of the Hermes-class starship, which is what the USS Sacagawea was uh, that Kirk was in command of before the Enterprise. He's got, you know, kind of a side elevation view of it, as well as a uh, a, a picture of what that ship looks like. And it's that uh, Franz Joseph design where it's just the saucer and then the neck connected to a single warp nacelle with the, the deflector dish hanging down below the saucer. And uh, 
that's very cool. I'm glad uh, got a visual of exactly what that looks like here. So thanks a lot for that. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. It's great to see the image of the Sacagawea. Oh, I know. I know Chris Menning. He called me out on Twitter because I pronounced it wrong at one point. So. Oh, <laughs> so did he? Which yeah. <laughs> I knew I would butcher that. But anyway, um, so yeah, those are pretty cool. And we also have uh, Justin Ozer says, I agree. Year five, number two is a great issue. The series is really killing it. Also, I can't believe I missed the thing that you found on the last page of the issue. They did that very subtly. Well, Justin, yes, they did. Because as you noticed on there that we were shocked. We didn't notice too until we were looking at the page. Yeah. Uh, reading it beforehand, had no idea, did not even notice that. And then it was only going over it during the show. So uh, glad we were able to point that out to other people too. That's cool. <laughs> yes. Well, Janessa Ciarda says, it's been a while since I've seen where no man has gone before. So I don't remember much about Gary Mitchell in this book, though. He was such a creep and I ended up hating him whenever he showed up. Gross. I can't really disagree with you. He was kind of over the top in the novel. Um, definitely the, the aspects of his personality of being kind of a playboy a little bit and a little bit of irreverent was definitely played up to kind of contrast him with James T. Kirk, who was definitely more serious. Those characteristics were definitely on full display there. Yeah, I remember thinking at the time he was a little creepy in this too, but we didn't mention that on the show. But yeah, good call out. Uh, and then Janessa says, I also forgot to mention that the floating Regulin city of Laputa is named after the Studio Ghibli film of the same name and its floating city. It was released stateside as the castle in the sky because a film named Laputa wasn't going to work with Spanish speakers. I can see where that would be an issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing that uh, we didn't point that one out because I didn't know anything about that. That yeah, now that you say it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting though. I had heard kind of uh, that it was named after another floating city of some kind, but I didn't know the specifics because I've never seen that uh, film. So uh, very interesting. I haven't seen it either, but you know the last comment here from. Christopher Baca says, I have the audiobook. I haven't started it yet. Well, Chris, start it. Come on. Let's right. do this. And come maybe on, you dude. have by now. But you, if you haven't, come on. Let's do this. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, that's all we have in news and our comic review and our listener feedback. So now that we've done all that, that means, yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the feature. The feature of episode number 273. Well, on today's feature, we are reviewing the book Titan Orion's Hounds written by Christopher L. Bennett. Well, it's really called Star Trek Titan Orion's Hounds, but you know, these titles get a little long. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole bunch of colons in there. This is actually for a Christopher L. Bennett book. The title's pretty short because lately I've been used to Star Trek Department of Temporal Investigations and then something or even better, Star Trek Enterprise Rise of the Federation Patterns of Interference by Christopher, you know, whatever. Those titles are really long, so it's kind of weird to see such a short Christopher L. Bennett title. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of different. So I mentioned earlier in the show that this was published in 2006. Is this... I'm assuming you've read this before, right? This isn't your first. 
I did read this before. Um, probably around 2009 when I was first reading the Titan series, um, way back when uh, I, I picked it up a few years, uh, just a couple of years after it came out kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, I did definitely remember this one vividly as I was reading it and kind of a bunch of stuff came back to me more so than usually happens when I reread a Star Trek novel. Usually it's kind of like, I don't really remember this. What's going on here? But this one must have stuck out in my mind because I remembered a lot of it as I went along. Yeah, I read this probably around the time it came out. Um, I, I vaguely remembered it, but as I was reading it, yeah, it was starting to come back to me also. Um, I'm glad that I have the chance to reread these because, you know, when you forget and it's been a while and to go back and read something again it's kind of great to kind of refresh your memory and have more insight into the star trek literary universe you know Mm -hmm. yeah especially kind of uh with a series like this that shares a bunch of continuity knowing where things are going in the future it's kind of neat to retroactively uh, look at them so you know spoilers for new novels that have come out in the last few years, but eventually Vale becomes captain of the Titans. So to see her back here in her role as first officer, her really just starting out in that role, it's really cool to just kind of see how her character, just as one example, progresses further into this series. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on some of Vale uh, later in the feature. But just talking about how this book starts off and, and where we are in the series of Titan, this is the third novel, and uh, this follows the political machinations of the first novel, Taking Wing, and then we have the side quest to the small Magellanic cloud in the second novel, The Red King. So now, here, we're... Because all this stuff was going on with the Romulans and all this. They weren't on that exploratory mission. But now, here we go. This is the start of that mission, that primary mission to explore beyond the borders of the Federation. And this time, we're going into the Bubblegum Nebula. I'm sorry, the Gum Nebula. (laughs) (laughs) I like to say bubblegum. It just is fun, right? Well, you share that with some characters in this novel too i know exactly (laughs) yes (laughs) so what do you think about the start of this mission well this is you know when when we got that first novel and it talked on the back about how the titan was going to be a reinvigoration of starfleet's charter to boldly go and you know but first we have this romulan thing to deal with this is really what i was waiting for because I love the idea of, you know, we've moved past all these wars, we've moved past all this stuff that I I like. I like political stuff, but, you know, that idea of just going out and exploring, there's just something so Star Trek about that. And then adding into that the, you know, diversity of Titan's crew and all these people from various backgrounds and different alien races and even non-humanoid races all working together on this mission of exploration. I was really excited to kind of get into that. And uh, this time around, not I wasn't as focused on that because... You know, I've, I've read all of Titan and I know how that goes and all that kind of stuff, but I was still, you know, that, that kind of 
feeling of excitement that the crew has to be finally setting out on this mission, it kind of infects you as a reader a little bit too. You know, I found myself going like, oh, this is really cool. They're going to be seeing things that no one has ever seen before. And, and you know, with the whole Cosmozoan thing that we get in this novel, it was just like something that we've never really seen that much of in Star Trek. So I really like that. I'm with you on that. So here's the thing. It's, and I, I don't want to get jump too far into this and this isn't spoilers or anything, but really as I was reading this and people will know what I, what I mean when I say this, and that is that this very much feels like a Star Trek novel, a Star Trek story is very Star Trekky, you know, it's, is that exploring strange new worlds or new civilizations type thing. It's, you know, these beings, this race that we, we find, we connect with a, previous next generation episode into this the, it is about exploring and it deals with the prime directive and it's all those things of star trek but it's not like oh you know same thing we've seen before i mean there's a freshness about this and we also have you know new crew members that we're not used to at this point by the third novel so you're exploring even new crew members of a new starship so there's a lot of fresh going on and a lot of familiar elements at the same time Mm -hmm. so it was refreshing after dealing with so much of the political intrigue that's going on with the romulans which i have really been enjoying but this is now like a breath of fresh air away from that and and I agree with you on that completely. Like I like I said, the first time around reading these, I was really eager to get past that Romulan stuff because I was like, oh, who cares? Um, this time around, I enjoyed that a lot more. But at the same time, like I said, I'm really connecting with this crew who are also kind of going like, let's get past this Romulan stuff. We're supposed to be on an exploration mission. Can we just go and do that already? And yeah, I'm on board with that. Yeah. So one of the things that we do discover early on in this novel is that, well, first of all, the the crew is on the starship and all of a sudden those who have telepathic abilities are, are getting like this this distress call in their heads, basically, and it's painful. And, you know, you've got Tuvok on the uh, Titan in the in this series of novels and you have Troy of course and there's some other members of the crew that have this telepathic ability that they're all like ah you know help oh pain blah, blah, blah. so the Titan goes towards whatever that call is and we see star jellies from the pilot episode of the next generation encounter at Farpoint. And this is the first time we've seen the large jellyfish creatures, I think in any novels or anything since encounter Farpoint. And I, I certainly know we never saw them again on the series or any of the movies, but I don't even think we revisited them in any of the novels until now. And of course, Riker and Troy were there on the enterprise in that pilot episode and are familiar with these star jellies. And so here they are again, what a huge, amazing coincidence that out of all of the thousands of people in Starfleet that, you know, these two who were in that, on that original mission encounter them again, that was sure lucky. Yeah. <laughs> How lucky are they? It's like destiny. <laughs> but uh, these jellies are being attacked by other jellies. You know, grape jellies going after the strawberry jelly. No, <laughs> you know, these star jellies are seeing, you know, they're seeing that they're being attacked by other jellies. And come to find out, the star jellies that are being attacked are alive, 
but they're being attacked by these other jellies that aren't alive. Troy refers to them as being viewed as if they're like um, zombie jellies, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and we come to find out there's this... Well, before we get into that, what'd you think about the jellies? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it's it's interesting that they've never been explored again. And I remember first reading this novel thinking, oh, yeah, those things. Like, why haven't we seen them again? Like, that seems like an interesting uh, thing to tell a story about. And I really enjoy this story. And I, I think it's really cool to be able to see things from their perspective um, and, and there are a number of things that Christopher Bennett is just really good at in his novels. And that's, you know, explaining inconsistencies and differences and stuff. Cause in that first episode of the next generation, Deanna Troy didn't just sense other p- beings emotions. She seemed to like experience them herself, right? Like great pain and all this stuff. And Bennett is able to explain that like this, that's a specific effect that the jellies have on her it's not just something they changed after the pilot episode they you know that's that was what those particular beings did and uh interestingly enough also just as another side note i was reading on the trek bbs and um i always thought that the name star jellies was just a little bit silly and kind of weird and apparently christopher bennett agrees with me on that and they they just weren't able to come up with another name that worked in the novel. So that's kind of what he settled on was star jellies, which he's not that crazy about himself. So that was kind of good to have that feeling of mind vindicated a little bit. Oh, I thought it came from one of the gold key comics. (laughs) It sounds like it, right? Like that's, it didn't bother me though. I didn't, it just, you know, yeah, it didn't didn't hugely bother me, but it was just kind of like star jellies. It was it's just it was just weird to hear the keep saying that. And you know, based on the relationship they have with these other aliens that we'll talk about later, they they have some other names for various versions of them, which we'll get into, uh, which sound a little bit better. But star jellies just sounds a little silly to me, but that's okay. <laughs> it sounds like something that like my daughters would have had when they were little, like, Oh, you know, we went to the store today and they bought the, their little star jellies that all the girls like to get now. <laughs> yeah, <trade>. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, okay. Then we've got Riker and the crew and they're involved in this conflict that's going on because in the dead zombie star jellies or zombie jellies, I don't know what we would call them, but <laughs> We have this race in there called the Pahakwell. Is that good? Huh? That's huh? pretty good. Okay. Yeah. I that was <laughs> close. I, I said Pahakwell. Pahakel. Pa- I don't know. Pahakwell. Pa- ha- 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 <laughs> and the star jellies are, you know, they're on them. Because remember, in Encounter at Farpoint, you can actually, you know, be in the jellies, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you know a ship or a city or something you know it's like so they're in these dead ones these zombie ones and they're controlling them they're using these jellies like a ship you mm-hmm. know they hunt jellies once they kill them they then use the jellies to live on and continue to use as a starship in their hunts and i thought that was i i liked how that worked especially when troy and away team went to board the jelly and were learning this and the Pahakwell, you know, they look like they have hawk like eyes and feathers and stuff. 
and they're not like the villain necessarily. I wouldn't say there's a villain in these books, but again, it's something like, you know, this is just a different race and they have a different way of doing things. And it's, you know, kind of revolting to think that they would go and they're killing the space jellies, but you know, this is their means of survival. It's hunting, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not, they're not killing them for food, but they are killing them for their survival. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it was interesting. And of course, everything that we see of them at the start is all through the eyes of our hero characters. So they just kind of see the surface of what's going on. They're, you know, killing these things and turning them into ships and, and then chasing down more of them. And of course, especially to the telepaths on Titan, they know firsthand that these are thinking intelligent creatures. And of course the automatic response is going to be, uh, you know, outrage at, at this and, you know, siding on, on the, the side of the species that seems like it's being abused and, uh, being taken advantage of by the Pahakwell. I like, I like your pronunciation. I think that's better. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's a very, you know, Star Trek, like, oh, these people are being taken advantage of the species. So, you know, we have to not necessarily put a stop to what these guys are doing because then you get the prime directive issues and that sort of thing as well. But you also can't hold back that kind of moral outrage and trying to think, well, maybe there's a different solution they can, they can do instead. So let's, let's try and investigate this. And, uh, of course, because things escalate, they find themselves in the middle of these two and they can't, do they find themselves unable to do nothing so they have to you know come to the aid of of these star jellies at some point because they also feel responsible for getting them into the situation and that kind of thing too so it's uh yeah it's all building to a big you know clash of cultures and um, ways of life yeah there's a conversation in here between Riker and Vale actually they have a few conversations but Vale is basically calling Riker out on his decisions. I mean, as her first off, as first officer, this is her job is to, you know, pull the captain aside and maybe question some things or point something out or just make sure that he's not being influenced and in a certain direction, that's a wrong decision. And she's bringing up the prime directive and Riker's being a bit defensive. He appreciates, you know, her point of view on this, but he thinks she's wrong and she thinks he's wrong. And it's not that they're having a bitter fight. They're just, you know, they're discussing this. Mm-hmm. And I kept citing more on Vale's side because she's presenting to Riker, like, should we really be getting involved in this? You know, I, you're coming in and saying, oh, we got to protect the star jellies and you're not even taking time to figure out really what's going on. Why are these people hunting the jellies? What, what is the intent here? What, what's happening? You're just like siding on the jelly side. And he's like, well, I'm not choosing sides, but we just need to protect their life. And mm-hmm. there's other conversations that follow where, as we're finding out about the Pahakwell, that this, as I mentioned earlier, a means of survival. And this is the balance, as they had mentioned, you know, it's like of nature, you know, things kill other things. It's, it's just, that's how the, how nature balances itself. 
And Riker's just seems to, well, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. And Vale's like, is it? I mean, who are we to interfere and make the decision? This has probably been going on for hundreds of years. And then we show up and say, nope, you can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to Riker's credit, he does kind of do a fairly good job of being neutral until the point where they've called the jellies basically using the tele the using the telepaths to kind of meet up with them and and talk and then while what when that happens the hunters come out of nowhere and and start attacking so at that point riker's like it's our fault that they're here to be attacked so now we're going to defend them so you know he's he's definitely riding that line um but I agree with you. Like Vale's side seems a little bit more defensible here because, you know, they shouldn't be getting involved in, you know, this conflict that they don't know a lot about. And, you know, they really, you know, just even the prime directive, even if they did know all about it, the prime directive says you shouldn't be doing that. So uh, it's, it's a tough position Rikers in, in a couple of these cases for sure. Because if you really look at it real world, it's almost as if, you know, when, you know, a few hundred years ago in you know the United States before it was the United States, you know, when Europeans were coming into America and they're seeing Native Americans hunting buffalo, it'd be like them protecting the buffalo and saying Native Americans, you, you can't hunt. You can't have that. Like, they're not even get taking the chance to find out why, you know, it's like, hmm. I mean, I'm not all wanting, I don't hunt, you know, I'm not into that. <laughs> I, if I see a deer, I, I don't have a desire to shoot or kill it. But at the same time, there are rules of nature. And I mean, my instinct would also be like Rikers. I would, I would want to protect the jellies, but as Starfleet officers, there's also that training that you have where, okay, when do I get involved? You know, let me figure out what's happening here and not just assume this, there's an evil intent. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think, uh, you know, some of that influence comes of course, from the telepaths talking to them and knowing that they're intelligent, which adds another element to the equation. And, you know, it's, it's a fantastical, fictional story so i honestly have no idea what i would do um but you know there's definitely i think that's uh one of the strengths of this novel too is that it raises these questions and doesn't necessarily give really cut and dried black and white answers to them i like that there's this dilemma and i think both sides could be argued very well and both sides be equally right uh, especially given the limited information that we have at the beginning of the novel. And I like what you said too, because about Riker feeling he's to blame and then having to protect the jellies. Cause yeah, as we get further in this novel, as they're going to find the jellies when they, you know, the jellies warp off at different periods of time or whatever. And, and then, or not the enterprise, but the Titan is able to then track them and find them, which then the, the Pahakwell then follow or find the jellies. And now Riker's like, Ugh, well, they wouldn't be attacking the jellies if we hadn't come here. And so we caused all this or whatever that starts to make more sense as to now he feels like, you know, he's the cause of it. So he needs to protect them. So yeah, his argument after a while, I think stands 
to reason a little more. But then there was another thing we discover. The crew questions, why are the jellies not running away from these attacking jellies? Mm -hmm. Or fighting back. Or fighting back. Because for the, the live jellies, they're like, you know, they would not hurt each other. That's just, that's their nature. We would not attack each other. So they can't understand why another jelly would attack them. They don't Mm -hmm. know that there's this crew of people, this other race of beings on the jelly controlling them. They think it's probably just another live jelly or as Troy says, you know, it's a zombie jelly, but they can't understand why it would attack. And it's not in their nature to expect when a jelly arrives that it may attack them. They're not expecting that because there are so many jellies out there that it's very, very rare when one of these jellies comes controlled by the Pahakwell to attack them. So it's not like this is an ongoing daily or weekly thing that they deal with. It's very rare. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, as far as like evolution goes and that sort of thing, it's kind of the same reason why, you know, people say like, why the heck did deer still wander out into the middle of the highway and just stand there and get hit? You know, cars haven't been around that long when it comes to like the evolutionary lifespan of the deer. And in the same way, you know, this is such a rare occurrence and it, you know, it's, it's probably just a small part in the development and, and they talk a little bit in this novel, maybe they're engineered, but regardless, it's not, you know, it, it's not a common enough occurrence, like you said, that they're prepared for it. They're, they haven't evolved to be able to deal with this threat. It totally confuses them and throws them into complete disarray because they just have no idea what's going on. So let's talk just a little bit of the Pahakwal. What do you think about them as a species in this? I mean, I thought they were, like I said, they don't feel like they're bad people. It's just, you know, this, they're no longer on the planet anymore. They don't have a home world. They need these jellies to be their ships, their homes. And so it's just part of their evolution that, you know, over time as they grow and, and as a society that, you know, more are born and, you know, they need more ships, they need more jellies and, and such. Um, you know, I, again, I think this is what I like about the novel. There is no evil villain or something it's like i don't necessarily agree or like what they're doing but you know they really don't have a choice Mm -hmm. yeah i actually found myself really liking this species just in how they were written and conceived of and how much thought went into their creation and in over the course of the novel, we do get the chance to meet a number of different people, and they're all different in their own way. You know, they're not this kind of monolithic, like, oh, these are the hunter people who hunt these things, and that's it, you know? Like, the main guy that we meet, a number of times, he's far more reasonable than I ever expected him to be, you know, yeah. when he's dealing with Riker. And he's like, you don't understand, you know, I don't have time to explain this to you, but, you know, just please stay out of this. And then even when Riker does stick his nose in it and and messes things up, he's still kind of like angry, but he's not like, I shall blow you out of the stars for blah, blah. He's still like, look, come on over here. I'll show you what we do. Like, we'll figure this out. You don't understand what's going on. Like they were 
that guy in particular was so reasonable. Like yeah. I was not expecting that. And then we do see some other people. There's, you know, this one younger guy who's very tied to tradition and we have to keep doing things the way we've been doing them and must never change. And, you know, there's, uh, this one woman of her, of that species who, you know, is a born hunter and, you know, there's just all these different individuals. And I really like that we get that varied look at this species and that they're not just, you know, all the same. You know, I, I think Christopher Bennett did a really good job of fleshing all of these people out and making them feel like a real group of people who are individuals and not just, you know, this faceless collective. Yeah. And as time goes on, we start to find out that they are protecting other races and people on other planets and such that it's not just about them. Yeah, we have a mix of different species on these ships because some of them have been rescued because their plants have been destroyed, which we'll kind of touch on here in a moment. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed them because they did feel real. And even though our situations and the way we live our lives isn't like theirs, it's like they have a reason a legit reason. This is their survival. Um, and it's just, I keep going back to balance, you know, it's, that's just nature. That's, that's, that's kind of the theme that keeps coming up through this is the balance. And they, and even though they're hunters, they also kind of, you know, put the jellies on a pedestal. Like when they kill one, they actually have like a bit of like, not a celebration, but almost like a mourning for it. Because it's like they're honoring it. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, they're, they're kind of like, um, what, you know, the hunting community would put up as the ideal hunter, right? Who's actually a conservationist as well as a hunter, you know, that, that really understands, you know, the species that they're hunting and, and, you know, when and how to do it and how many to take and, you know, so that you're not driving a species to extinction or causing them unnecessary suffering, all of these sorts of things. They kind of have this code that they're living by that, like you said, will maintain this balance. And from what we see, they actually do a pretty good job of it. Like they, they don't seem to take more than the population can handle and, and all this sort of stuff. And they steer clear of their breeding grounds and try not to get too close and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, they're, they're really kind of, they turn out to be kind of the ideal conservationist type instead of just like a sport hunter or something like that. So based on what we just said about the Pahakwell and the other beings that are on these dead star jellies, has is Riker making the right decisions in this situation? I think that's still a matter of perspective. Like that's, that's the thing in this novel is I find myself not able to fault either side or praise either side completely because based on what happens in this novel and, and where things come out to at the end i think by the end it's a better situation for everyone and that wouldn't have happened without Riker doing what he did but at the same time was he acting rashly yes did he not have all the information certainly not and 
Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. Like, I think, again, this is one of the things I love about this novel is everyone has their perspective. And from their perspective, they're all doing the right things. Like, no one here is, you know, being a dastardly criminal, except for, you know, a couple things here and there later on. But, you know, for the most part, nobody's being cruel or evil or anything like that. No, I love when you said that because it goes back to that point that I made about Riker and Vale having those conversations. And I said, you know, I'm kind of favoring more what Vale said. I kind of agree with her a little more. And it's not that I don't agree with Riker. It's like I said, if I saw the star jellies being attacked, my first instinct would be protect them too. But it's like you said, it's, I see both points. I don't think Mm -hmm. one is wrong versus the other one's right one's wrong it's just more that uh veil to me was approaching it more like a starfleet prime directive federation this is you know this is the way we do things Riker seemed a little more emotional about it which he mm-hmm. kind of admits that he may be but even you know the pahakwell Riker, veil every character the jellies i mean everybody's point of view and perspective of this is right for them. There's nothing where you can look at this and say, nope, he's wrong. She's wrong. They're right. They're wrong. Whatever. I mean, it's no one's out to try to harm anyone in an evil way. As like you said, it's just survival and instinct and just perspective life perspective. So I would say at this point that, you know, we're getting a little further into the book. So if you want to avoid spoilers, it's probably the time to kind of tune out. But um, one of the things then we see a jelly get killed and the Titan does protect it from the hunters. I mean, after it dies, but the hunters don't board it or take it away. Titan takes it away from them. And gives it back to the jellies. And the jellies are so thankful that one of their dead is returned to them. And, you know, those who have telepathic abilities are sensing and feeling what the jellies are feeling. And, and the, I mean, they're individuals, but there's also a collective mindset that goes on too between them. Um, and Troy does a really good job at explaining it much better than I am right now, but (laughs) essentially they take it back to their home world and they bury it. And there's other jellies that are like in water, but it buries it down into the deep seabed. So Mm -hmm. they, in in a sense, beam up this seabed soil into one of the jellies to make room for the dead jelly to be, down under the water Mm -hmm. and at first i was kind of like okay well that's cool but okay now one of the jellies floating around in space has a bunch of seabed dirt mud in it (laughs) or something and then from this point it and the jellies produce a new jelly (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i i thought like again this is one of those things that I want to peek inside Christopher L. Bennett's head because he just takes all these little tiny details and just creates really cool ideas out of it. So we know that from Encounter at Farpoint, the jellies 
have kind of a biological replicator system. You know, they can create uh, new forms out of matter. So like the bowl of apples, for example, that Riker samples <laughs> and encounter at Farpoint, that was matter created by the jelly that had been captured that was Farpoint Station. And so they take all this soil, all this seabed dirt, and create a newborn jelly out of it, basically. Like, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically what they do. And, you know, it passes from jelly to jelly, and they add a little bit of their own ideas, I guess, into its, you know, makeup and DNA and all that stuff. And, uh, all, all of the little traits that it will exhibit and that sort of thing. And after it passes through all of them, then it gets a chance to grow up from that point. And I thought, what a cool idea, like, you know, seeing that it had this replicator ability and then using that in its procreation, like, man, I, I, I wish I could write like that. Like, that's really cool. I, I would not have that idea in a million years. <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's one thing that I like about this is that, you know, strange new worlds, new civilizations, it's strange ideas that we may not have thought about before. So it's, it, it becomes very interesting. I like also that they question, how are these jellies able to do this? So wait, these are these beings that are alive yet when you go if you go into a jelly, they have artificial gravity. That that doesn't really make sense. But there's some speculation and theories of the fact that, you know, as you're saying, you know, they're adapting. They're they've probably learned this from, you know, ships or because they have gravity on their world, they just reproduce gravity. They're able to just produce these things. We don't know how. But they can do these things. How do they travel at warp? You know, it's like mm -hmm. they've learned warp. And then we find out that they learn more from Titan. There's a very dramatic scene with Tuvok and Paslar where Tuvok is basically kind of losing his mind <laughs> in a sense from the jellies because the jellies have chosen Tuvok to help them uh well, basically get Tuvok to tell them how that they can protect themselves against these zombie jellies. And by the mm -hmm. way, they call them sky mounts too. We haven't mentioned that, but, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, so Tuvok is not in his right mind. And one reason also is because of all the traumatic experiences he's had on Voyager for seven years. Which but, I thought was a great way to tie that in. I thought that it? was really cool. Yeah, I did too. And then he, basically attacks Paslar and mind melds with her to extract the information that she knows of the operations of the ship and how certain things work or whatever. And then that's transmitted back to the jellies. And now all of a sudden the jellies are like, Oh, Oh, okay. Um, transporter beaming. Like we can transport people. Like, and so as they're being attacked, they transport the crew, they beam them off of the, dead jelly and into space and they die. And mm -hmm. then they're Wiping shielding out a whole clan, a of, whole clan. Of these people. Yeah. And see, this is the part where I thought, okay, Riker has done what he can to protect, protect, you know, a jelly here, a jelly there. But then because of his actions and getting involved to the point that, you know, they got Tuvok to 
send all this information about shielding and transporting and all these things, more people or more beings have died because of his interference. Yeah. And it's, it's the whole unintended consequences thing. And, you know, this is the point in the novel where there's no going back from, from this point now. So something has to change because this can't continue. The, the Pahakwell now can't hunt these things without taking huge losses. Their entire way of life is going to be completely destroyed now because the jellies have this knowledge that they didn't have before. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a dark day <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause the balance isn't there anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. the jellies were not in any jeopardy of going into extinction, but now the Pahakwell, if they can't harvest and they can't hunt jelly to survive, they're at this disadvantage, they could face extinction. So, you know, it's really kind of disturbing in a sense, you know, to think that, you know, death produces life or protects life from one being or species over another, you know, but that is kind of what nature's call is. That's why I always hate watching nature films. And, (laughs) you know, you see one animal chasing, you know, like there's the fox chasing the bunny and it's like, no, don't kill the bunny. Don't But the fox needs to eat, you know, mm-hmm. or they'll die. They won't survive. And, <laughs> and we'll kind of touch a little bit later. Uh, there's a character that's original to the Titan and to this novel, uh, or really Malar. Uh, well, there's a little something there with connected to this. I think we'll, we'll touch on in a moment, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, the, the, like you said, the whole balance is completely upset now. And to me, this whole, you know, there are other ways now because, because the sky mounts and the, the live versions, the star jellies there, they are intelligent thinking creatures. You know, there are ways forward from here that, you know, the Pahakwell have never considered before because they haven't been forced to consider it before. And again, I'm not saying that what happened is right and that sort of thing, but it did kind of kick into gear this kind of having to cope with this change and find new and unexpected solutions to problems that were only solved one way before. And this is where the the novel to me becomes really interesting because we see this kind of tension between uh, culture and tradition and that sort of thing. And, you know, moving on to from that and adapting to changes and that sort of thing, which uh, is really difficult for a lot of people to let go of something that, you know, in this case, certain members and most members of the Pahakwell think of as sacred, right? As kind of a religion, this whole idea of uh, taking the sky mounts and giving them praise and uh, using them to battle other cosmozoans, as we'll find out and that sort of thing. It's, it's sacred to them and it's very, very difficult to let go of. And some of them just are unable to. Okay. So then, yeah, then we have these, what they call cosmozoans. It's this, these species, you know, species or whatever, like we're talking about the jellies, but then there's others that 
the harvester, the crystalline entities that you know most people listening to this should be familiar with from the next generation, uh, also known as branchers in the book. So I liked when the uh, the crystalline entities came into it because it's like, oh yeah, the jellies, the crystalline entities, like all these cosmos cosmozolans things and you know it's like i just started envision that there's other types that are out there and that's that's what they're hunting and harvesting and this is what they're protecting and and some of these things you know they're all around certain star clusters they kind of gather towards certain areas and they pull energy and things and there's just a whole lot of like depth into that mm-hmm. yeah and i really love this kind of ecosystem that the authors created here and you know, all the, this give and take and these creatures that they're basically the Pahakwell and the other species that they're aligned with use the sky mounts to kind of keep all these other species in check that are huge threats to entire worlds and solar systems and stuff. And we get a lot of references to what's called the hounding, which is this big event that all the people, all the Pahakwell take the sky mounts to every so often. And it turns out what it is, is there's this huge creature called a harvester that can destroy entire planets and they keep it at bay in this hounding, they call it, which is, you know, that's why they need these things. That's what they're doing. They're, they really are conservationists and, and protectors of, other planets and people and that sort of thing. So that was really interesting and very eye-opening, of course, to the crew of Titan when they realize, oh, this is the bigger picture here. It's not just this battle between these two species. It's part of a much larger ecological system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is why they're saving people from planets because they're being attacked by this and, and, Again, it's not just even about their own survival. It's protecting the lives of others. And and there's just so much complexity in this. I mean, I just, I keep saying that. And, and I love that, you know, when they're fighting the crystalline entities, you know, and Riker has dealt with them before. And I like how that one leader of the Pahakwell is telling him about the crystalline entities. Oh, they do this. He goes, yeah, I know. And they do this. Uh, yeah, I know. Oh, you've seen these before. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, it's, yeah, really great, really interesting. And the other thing is, like, you know, the the book then in the second half, you know, is about adapting to the change and facing challenges and such. So, uh, what do you think about them adapting to new ways of life? Well, that definitely, to me, is like the big theme of, especially, like I said, the last half of this book here. The Pahakwell and their allies, they no longer have the option of using the sky mounts the way they have in the past because, you know, the jellies can see them coming now. So they have to enter into this new relationship of cooperation, which, you know, Titan and Riker try to foster and, you know, both sides are very hesitant, right? Like the jellies, you know, they're these are the guys that killed us all these years. I don't know if we're, you know, but they, they're willing to give it a try. And most of the Pahakwell or some of the Pahakwell are as well, but some of them are very resistant to it. And, you know, they, they try using them the same way they did before. They, uh, 
live in inside the live jellies and try to use them to attack uh like the branchers like the crystalline entities and and other this i forget what they're called but these these spinners basically that should be fairly easy but you know the the star jellies panic a bit and it kind of goes disastrously and you know things don't really work out well so you know there's definitely some um drawbacks to the new situation and that sort of thing but they're trying right they have to do something to adapt to the changes or they're going to go extinct or their civilization at least is going to be uh, hugely curtailed or decimated by the changes they're going through because they don't have the resources to be able to combat it and to me you know it, it reminds like a world, me a lot of that that's like a real world problem definitely <laughs> yeah like it's definitely there's a lot of allegories you could draw here and to me you know we see a lot in the news about how climate change is going to affect our way of life unless we do some drastic changes and that sort of thing and we as a species are very resistant to that we don't want to change our way of life because you know, the way we have lived has afforded us a comfortable lifestyle that we don't want to change in any big way, you know, and it's, it's something that apparently could be a, an existential threat in the future. And that's definitely what the Pahakwell are facing on a very short time scale. And depending on, you know, which scientists you listen to, it, feels like we're going to have that same thing in our near future where we have this kind of existential threat that we don't really seem to be doing much to rise to the challenge of. So that's kind of, to me, what was going through my head as I was reading this. And of course, a lot of news stories came out the week that I was reading this about, you know, some pretty dire predictions for the future. So I, I think that really contributed to kind of where my head was at while I was reading. Yeah, adaption and change. Those are two things that are difficult. And, you know, some it's easier than others. But, you know, whether it's climate change or something else, it's just that whole notion of the Pahakwell having to adapt and cooperate with the jelly and find a new way of doing things that is different from what they've been doing for hundreds maybe even thousands of years or whatever it is, but then you've got some that don't accept that and they're going to keep doing the old way and keeping doing the same old way, the tradition, the way it's always been is a comfort. It's, it's what they know. It's who they are. It's their identity. And to change that is changing their identity. And it really makes it very difficult to make that change. And they don't really see the need to make it. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, why do I need to change it? What, you know, this is who we are. Why do I need to change? They don't necessarily believe that they have to change. They don't necessarily know if they change that would even work. This works. That is mm -hmm. unknown. And, you know, and that can, you can look at that in today's world of anything. If there's a change, there's a question of this, even what we're doing today may not be perfect, but the other way could be worse. I don't know if it's going to work and, you know, and I'm, I'm resistant to it. So yeah, yeah, it really speaks to humanity and all the things. And again, it's not really like who's right or wrong. It's just really understanding those two different points of view. And I think mm -hmm. we can relate to those. And then you may might favor one and say, 
well, you know, I think the leader of the hack well that's adapting, I think that's the right direction. But I mean, who knows? I mean, again, they may not have had to take that, taken that direction if Riker didn't get involved. <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, it, it's unintended consequences for sure. Yeah. So I just want to touch on some of these characters real quick. I mean, we talked about Tuvok and Paslar and how he, you know, essentially assaulted her. Uh, in some ways I th- feel that she brushed it off too easily. I expected a little more drama and resistance from her to Tuvok, but she seemed to be very understanding of knowing that it really wasn't Tuvok doing that. He was under the influence of something. So, you know, I, you know, I would think she, I, she still struggled with him being around and all that, but uh, uh, I thought that was an interesting situation that she was facing with Tuvok. And But if anything, we focused even more so on Tuvok and him coming to grips. He had a harder time with it and what he did and stuff. And he, you know, was looking to his wife, Tapel. Uh, she was willing to help and Troy's willing to help him. And she gives him some tips that she knows to uh, that telepaths use as betazoids that are different from the training of Vulcans. And, you know, Tuvok's fear is, you know, feeling emotion. Emotion is, is a fear in a sense for him that he could get from the jellies. And anyway, I just thought that whole dynamic was interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of expected Pazlar, like you, to uh, be a little bit more resentful. But the the path she takes, I thought, was interesting as well because she talks to Tuvok about, you know, how can she defend herself? Like she wants to learn from him because she's so much weaker than other species who uh, evolved in high gravity. She's from a very low gravity world. So it's very brittle bones and not a lot of strength comparatively. She wants to learn how to defend herself better against a much stronger opponent. So I thought that was kind of an interesting path for her to take really kind of taking charge rather than feeling like, uh, you know, the victim that she was of the violence rather than just kind of staying in that place taking charge and moving forward and, and controlling her destiny going forward. Yeah. She even said to Tuvok, you know, I am fearful of you. I am scared of you, but that's why I want you to train me. Cause the mm-hmm. only way I'm going to get over this is if I learn how to protect myself and what better way to learn to protect myself is from the person I fear the most right now. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was really cool. Yeah. I like that part. And then also talking of fear, there's a whole dynamic between uh, Torvig and Carew. And uh, so Torvig, he's kind of this creature. I think we've talked about him before, and he has like implants to the point that uh, Carew looks at him as doesn't consciously think about it, but kind of has a bit of a problem with Torvig because he kind of looks like a Borg. <laughs> and Carew <laughs> lost his, you know, partner on uh in the movie First Contact, um Hawk, Lieutenant mm-hmm. Hawk. 
from the Borg. So he has this relationship with the Borg that uh, when he sees Torvig, he doesn't necessarily know if he trusts him. It's kind of awkward because he kind of reminds him of Borg. Torvig uses nanites then to like study how people have gut feelings. And he's doing it without telling anybody. And I agree with Carew. It's like, you can't just like infest people with these nanites just because you're doing some research about gut feelings. You know, it's like, it's really a saying. It's like, you don't have their permission. So he locks them up, but then he's being questioned as to, you know, is, are you doing that because of this situation? It's not a big deal. I, I forget who the character was that was questioning uh, what that character's name was had like the, it was really big, had, I think had tentacles or something. Um, I don't remember, but she, or no, oh, was it, no, it wasn't her. Was it the Tellerite? I'm trying to remember oh, which one it was. Oh, the Tellerite counselor. Yeah. Yeah. The Tellerite counselor is just like, well, you know, maybe you just have a problem with him. And he's like, no, I don't have a problem with Torvig. She's like, yeah, you do. And that's where he starts to discover maybe he does because he kind of reminds him of a Borg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought this dynamic was really interesting. I, I like Torvig. I think he's a cool character. Uh, this is a species that some other species at some point in the past elevated them from, you know, non-sentient little forest-dwelling creatures to uh, creatures that have bionic implants and are intelligent and this sort of thing. So he's really cool. He's got a different interesting outlook and you know isn't afraid to kind of push the limit sometimes apparently and uh Karu, of course has a huge reaction to that of course because of what what happened to lieutenant hawk on uh, the enterprise so you know I, I thought this was a really interesting story and i like that um the story didn't really shy away from exploring it like they just kind of went full into this story that was really emotional for Karu and really cool. Yeah. Torvik is very much like, yeah, brushed off my shoulder. You know, I'm pretty cool about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then we have uh Jazza who has a fairly big role in this, in this book. Um, you know, he's Bajoran and he's really the one who's helping to investigate and, and analyze the jellies throughout the novel and is really fascinated by them. But we also learn very early in the novel that, you know, he's ha- he had a intimate relationship with Vale and that puts Vale in an awkward position because she's first officer and she doesn't know if she should be getting involved. And Troy now knows about it. And, Oh, you know, I just like, and throughout the novel, she's just like, always like, you know, I'm attracted to him, but I shouldn't and whatever. And jazz is just like, yeah, sure. Whatever. You know, like I can do another <laughs> one night stand, not a big deal, whatever. Or maybe we shouldn't. And Vale's like, yeah, but maybe we could, I don't know. You know? And it's so funny because she's so, I, I, I look at Vale as being, you know, very like confident in herself. I mean, I know she has her doubts sometimes, but you know, I think, her, the way she looks to the rest of the crew is very confident and she knows what she wants to do and how she's going to do it. And she's hard as a rock, but when it comes to her relationship with Jazza, she can hardly get a word out. Mm-hmm. A yeah. Complete I, sentence. <laughs> I, I like what he brings out in her sometimes because yeah, she, she feels like, well, Ricker and Troy have their whole relationship and they're making it work. I can do that too. And it turns out she can't like she, 
you know, she's the other side of this where, you know, maybe it's not so good to have colleagues involved with one another in this sort of environment because it does affect how she views her job and how she does her day-to-day work and that sort of thing. Or she fears that it would if they got more serious kind of thing. So I thought that was a really interesting exploration of that kind of a relationship and really counters what Riker and Troy have going on. Yes. And she even starts, yeah, she's questioning even to Troy, you know, is, you know, I got to kind of, you know, watch you guys, you know, I promise that, you know, make sure I caught to Riker that, you know, if I feel like he's making decisions, not based on being a captain, but because his decisions are made because he's married to you and he's making more emotional decisions or whatever. But then I feel intimidated, Troy, because, you know, you have this bond. I'm his first officer, but I feel like when we're on the bridge and he's making a decision, he looks at you before he looks at me. And she's like, yeah. but I'm the first officer. So that kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. She gives, it's almost like you have this telepathic link. And she's like, well, we do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that scene. And, and Troy's just like, you know, he picked you and you said, no, he still came after you. You, you are important to him. You know, we have our relationship, he and I, but you, the two of you, you know, you're the first officer, you know. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to build that confidence in her about her role on the ship. But yeah, I can understand her point. It's not going to be easy to be the first officer of a captain who's married to another officer that's on the bridge with them. Yeah. And especially since because she's the first officer, everyone on board except Riker reports to her. So, you know, how do you if you have to, how do you discipline the captain's wife if she steps out of line or something like that? Right. Yeah. Like. It's, uh, I can see why she didn't want to come on board the ship in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then we have Lavena, who, uh, is an aquatic amphibian like person who has to have water and she has a special suit and everything. And she had a relationship <laughs> with, uh, Zin Rahavri. And, uh, he's, you know, very, you know, sexual, he flirts with all the women. It's like a compliment. I mean, that's what you do. You, you flirt, you know, he's, he's the race that we see of the Federation president in the undiscovered country, which is an Afrosian. And so he's an engineer Afrosian on the ship and he's has this affair and she's like, almost like this whole relationship kind of remind me of the jazz and veil relationship where she's just kind of embarrassed that, you know, she had, you know, and Troy knows, Troy knows everything on the ship, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is another relationship that, yeah, Troy stumbles across and, and finds out about. And, you know, adding to all of this is Lavena also had a relationship with Riker way back in the past too, yes. which is complicated for all these other reasons because she, was at a stage in her life where she's supposed to be very responsible and looking after kids and, and, you know, doing that sort of thing. Now she's past that in her new stage of life where, you know, she's allowed to kind of be promiscuous and, and not worry about that sort of thing. So, you know, there's some interesting dynamics going on there that I think will, well, I know because I've read other books, we, I know we'll get into in, in later books for sure. Yeah, we'll get more of these characters for sure. That's definitely coming up. There's one character I don't think we really get to see again after this novel, and that is uh, Aurelie Mallar. And mm-hmm. uh, this is really her 
her story in a sense. I mean, she's got a somewhat small role, but it's throughout. She's kind of traveling along with this story. So she's an interesting species. She's an aerial and she has tusks and she's got four legs scales like a a very strange looking creature she's a federation officer a starfleet officer i should say and uh she's from this planet where she helped her younger sister they fell into a ravine and she herself she sprained one of her trunks and her sister broke her leg and then she tried to save her sister from this creature that was trying to attack them and she was throwing rocks at it. And this creature was pregnant. And so uh, basically the balance of nature was thrown off. And because there's the balance of, you know, the, the creature died or, and then the, the, the pregnancy or the, and the offspring of the creature live. And then, you know, because they weren't there to do something, there was flooding and mudslides or whatever. They killed some people in the village of Ariel's. I don't know this whole thing, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it, it's not silly or anything. It's just, I, I don't really call the whole thing real clear in my mind right now, except for the fact that this was a crime because she mm-hmm. threw the balance of nature off and so they kicked her off the planet and she went and joined Starfleet, but she knows she can never go back to her planet. And she's always questioning herself. She has doubts about herself constantly. She thinks that she's a bad being, but she's not. It's just, you know, and no one's going to understand how her people are because it sounds silly that she tried to protect her sister. And that's why it's a crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, she didn't let her sister be eaten by this animal. So, right. and and that ended up being a crime because of of the follow-on effects kind of thing. Definitely an interesting species. I love that when I love when we get really alien aliens. So, like, not even just physiologically, but how they view the universe and and how they see themselves and the rest of the world. So I think that's a really cool aspect of her character. And, you know, at the end of this novel, she ends up going off with the Pahakwell to kind of facilitate the the relationship between them and the sky mounts, the star jellies going forward. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a neat little arc for her character. Interestingly, also, if you want to get a look at what the author conceptualized when he created the character you can uh, google O'Reilly Malar and you'll have to tell Google that you really did mean O'Reilly O-R-I-L-L-Y Malar instead of O'Reilly Malar but uh, if you do an image search that first image will show you kind of what she looks like and she's kind of this pangolin type creature with the scales but also these two kind of grasping tusk things Really interesting looking creature, I think. So uh, I really like this character. She's very innocent in a way, too. She's got this this innocence to her that I really like. Yeah, almost childlike in a sense. Mm-hmm. And the species is empathic. So she's being affected by the jellies, even to the point that when Tuvok was attacking Pazlar, she tried to help, but she couldn't because the star jellies. And so she didn't do anything and she felt guilt over that. So she has a lot of guilt throughout this book. 
And mm-hmm. again, the balance of nature is something that's important to her and her species and such. And so I think she feels like she can really help with the the star jellies and their relationship with the Pahakwell and and that's her place. And uh Riker understood that and allowed her to join them. So overall, we've covered a lot, and I'm sure there's even more we could go even deeper into some things but uh so what's your overall thoughts of this book well overall this uh i i like i said a lot of this really stuck out in my mind and i remembered reading it early on and it turns out that's because i really like this book (laughs) there's a lot of really great ideas in here and like i said this whole ecosystem that the author has come up with i think is just so cool and so well thought out and this novel feels very Star Trekky to me. Like it's got that Star Trek message to it about cooperation and, you know, all these different ideas like adapting to change and, and letting go of the past and all this kind of stuff. And the final solution, which we didn't talk a lot about, but what they end up being, what they end up doing is kind of using the star jellies as hounds to kind of train the crystalline entities to fight the other cosmozoans as their protectors going forwards. And that, that kind of is this new balance that they're able to strike here. And I thought that was a really cool solution to the whole problem. And maybe it all works out just a little bit too perfectly, but I really liked it. I thought this was, you know, one of those stories that held my attention all the way through and with an ending that was really satisfying. And uh, I don't do this often. I try not to do this often, but I don't think I can give this one less than five. Like I can't find anything in this novel that I didn't really enjoy. So yeah, I definitely have to give this one, um, five out of five newborn star jellies made out of underwater dirt that they replicated into other stuff or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm kind of there with you. I, I wouldn't give it five for me. There were times where I felt it was getting a little repetitive at times with the uh, where they kept saying, well, we're hunters and this is how we do things. Well, we're hunters. This is what like, after a while I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it with these guys. I know <laughs> like their messaging has come across like some, there were times where it just felt like it was, I don't want to say it was stuck, but just, there was times I just felt like I get the point. I felt like it just kept coming up over and over and over again. So that, that bothered me a little, but, um, you know, I, I'd say that, yeah, and again, talking through it just makes me appreciate the book even more. So I would give this one not a full jar of jelly, but a jar of jelly that someone took a little bite of jelly out of it, but it's almost full. <laughs> That's still a really I, good rating. I like that. And, and, you know, we'll put a star label on it. So it's a star jelly brand. Nice. Star jelly brand jelly. <laughs> Well, the voyages of the starship Titan uh, continue in this novel and continue very satisfactorily for me anyway. I, I loved this novel. I think uh, you really enjoyed it as well. So, you know, I, I love when we have an episode like this where it's just, you know, all good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it was really enjoyable. And we both said, I said at the beginning of the show, you said at the end, it's very Star Trekky. So, I mean, that right there makes it 
you know, a perfect novel. <laughs> if it's a Star Trek novel, it feels Star Trekky. You know, we need a, a dictionary that defines what Star Trekky means. Oh yeah. man, that's tough. You ask like ten Star Trek fans, you'll get ten different answers. I think, but uh, it, you know, <laughs> this is going to sound bad. But Star Trekiness is like porn. You know it when you see it. <laughs> okay, well, it's been fun talking about Star Trekky porn today, but it isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other Star Trekky things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. But just really in a most passionate way he could, in a compassionate manner, he, he goes to him, you are not alone. We're here to help you to do this together. And that means so much to me. Like, you know, I guess being being the youngest kid in the family, so I kind of think, you know, that like you, you don't want to be left out. So you know that feeling where no one's listening to you. But to see Picard really reach out to him and he wants to help him with all his might. But, but there's just that... There's that divide with him not being able to speak or hear. Melodic treks. Eventually, you know, it, it the screen goes to white, and then you cut to um, Ripley's ship that, that's been derelict for 57 years, and there's this very lonesome-sounding string melody that's playing, and I don't think it's a direct lift, but it's it's certainly very very similar to a piece by Arm um, Kachaturian. Uh, it's from a piece, a suite of music called the Gain Ballet Suite, and it's an adagio. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. No, that we say goodbye to everybody this season. Like, anyone who walked off the bridge, like, if you had to go take a leak, they would, like, all stand up and say goodbye. It was, like, pathetic. The Orb. Maybe we all need to be comfortable with that discomfort of hearing something that's different from what we think. So instead of attacking, instead of pushing back immediately, we could just let it go, we could say nothing, or we could respond with, hmm, that's interesting. That's not how I see it, but I didn't think about it that way either. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash Trek FM. So I have a website, treklet.com, and each week I post the new episodes of Literary Treks as they come out. And I actually got a comment on there about uh, 
Literary Treks 271 from Bob. So Bob says, good episode, guys. Christopher L. Bennett isn't my favorite Trek author, but I think this is one of his stronger recent efforts. My favorite part of the book was the chess match between Kirk and Spock. A small scene, but I liked it a lot. Least favorite bit, Kirk feeling guilty because of human privilege. Why didn't TOS have lots of alien cast members? Probably because it was a low-budget 60s show. I mean, 95% of the aliens look exactly like humans. I think it is it is a disservice to the show to shoehorn in racism as an explanation. It's like using the augment virus to needlessly explain the Klingons, but this seems nastier. No problem with the story about racism. I just think it was a clumsy way of going about it. Well, thanks for the comment, and I appreciate the perspective. For me personally, I don't even think that what they said necessarily in the novel that it was that it was due to racism, but I did appreciate the fact that Kirk accepts that there that might be a possible explanation and kind of examines his own reasoning to see if that's the case. I, I might be wrong about that, but that's kind of what I got from it. And for me, I appreciated that, but I understand if, you know, different perspective might see that differently. I can see there was a bit of an underlying, maybe racist message in there of some type. Um, the thing I like about Star Trek Enterprise, that series, is it was pre-Federation. And so Starfleet we saw as being an Earth service. And so... I like to think that when the Federation was formed and we get to this point in the 23rd century, that um, Starfleet is still mostly an Earth service. It's part of the Federation. And so most who serve in Starfleet are humans. But, you know, Vulcans have their own uh, Navy of some sort or whatever, Space Navy and, and other planets have their own, but they're not as actively involved in the Federation as earthbound Starfleet is. And so it takes time for other species to start wanting to join Starfleet and going that route. Privilege, it could be some of that could be involved in that because if it's mostly humans, there might be. And you don't want to think of Starfleet officers and the Federation being that way, but you know we're also only human. So it takes time, as we mentioned in the feature, time for change, time for making things different, you know, so... Who knows? I thought it was an interesting take to, to explain mm -hmm. why we see more humans than other aliens. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows, plus great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Mutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. And Dan, when you're not being caught with a woman by Troy walking in on you... <laughs> 
where, where can people find you? Why is she is she in like every hallway on this ship? I mean, come on. She is wandering everywhere. <laughs> oh man, I should like follow her on Twitter so that I know where she is, you know, and and plan my escapades <laughs> thusly. But uh Speaking of Twitter, you can find me on there. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I have a Star Trek YouTube channel. Uh, and you can also find me on my website at Treklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new, and of course, in the Babel Conference. Now, Bruce, when you're not debating the old ways versus the new ways, and if we can still take sky mounts, or if we have to find a different way to live with the star jellies, where can we find you? Well, you can find me the old way on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me the new way on Instagram at just Admiral Rex, because, <laughs> you know, Twitter's older than Instagram. But uh, then you can also find me on the Star Wars Report podcast and you can also find me on Live from the Edge when a new episode of Discovery comes out. We do a live show the next night. And of course you can always find me in the Babel Conference and in our Goodreads group. So thanks everyone for listening and until next time Live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.